Well, if you're anything like me and you've got a, a, a smartphone, texting tends to be easier for you to communicate. Uh, you might even say that like, DMs on social media are, are pretty convenient. Email means you don't have to worry about uh, stamps and delays at the post office. But even though we have all of these different fancy ways to communicate, i got to say there is nothing that beats opening up my mailbox and finding a handwritten letter with my name on it. There's just something personal about it, something special, something even that has a, kind of a, a different kind of weight to it. When I open up that letter and read what someone took the time to write out, I mean, who even writes these days? I think my hand cramps after half a paragraph. This morning, we begin this new series entitled, Dear Church, a pastor's letter to the church. As we begin this new ministry year, anticipating the summer coming to a close and the year kind of kicking off again, and we approach the celebration of our five-year anniversary as a campus on September 19th, as we prepare to celebrate God's faithfulness to us over the years, and get ready for what he is calling us to next. We want to take some time over the next few, few weeks to remember what it is that God has called us to as his people. What it is that should define us as citizens of the kingdom of God living here and now as we wait for his return to make everything right again. And so the content of this sermon series is actually the content of my prayers for you as your pastor. The prayers of the pastors across all of our campuses for the people that the Lord has put in these local bodies of believers. The themes that we're going to be touching on these next few weeks are what we pray for you. But the reason we pray these things for you is because this is who God has commanded us as a people to be. Who God is working in us to be. Who God has saved us to be. These kingdom citizens that live out the good news of his kingdom in a world that desperately needs that good news. But before we get to the text that we're reading this morning, I also need you to know one more thing about this pastoral letter turned sermon series. And it's that I've plagiarized this sermon. What I mean is that all I'm saying up here is what Jesus wants for his church. I'm not trying to make anything fancy. I'm not trying to, to, to make up anything that, that just kind of gets you going. What I and your pastors want for you is nothing more and nothing less than what Jesus wants for you. So I say that word uh, provocatively because I am copying and pasting what Pastor Jesus wants for his church this morning. What he wants for his local embodiment of his church at Wheaton Bible Church across all of our campuses. What Pastor Jesus wants for us as a family here at TVC. And so with that in mind, there's a lot of places in scripture where I could go to show you what Jesus wants for his church. Where I could uh, uh, control C and control V, if you're a tech person here. But where I want us to camp out for the next few weeks is to, to answer this question of what Jesus wants for his church is, is in the Gospel of Luke. And in particular, where I want us to camp out in Luke is to pick out six of Jesus' parables. We're like the best teachers. Jesus uses stories to make a point. And his point in these particular parables is to show what God's kingdom citizens look like. And so for the next six weeks, I want us to look at these parables and prepare ourselves for how I, I am praying that God will shape us in this next year. And so the first parable that we're jumping into this morning is Luke 8, 4 through 15 where we encounter something that, that people sometimes call the parable of parables, which makes it a really fitting place to start as we talk through all the different parables. It's a story that explains the stories Jesus is going to use to make his kingdom point. So you can open up your Bibles to Luke 8. If you're with us online, I want to encourage you to do the same thing. Open up your Bible, and like we do here at TVC, if you're able, would you please stand as we read from God's Word in Luke 8, 4 through 15. People of God, hear God's word from Luke 8, 
starting at verse 4. While a, large, while a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that, though seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. Verse 11, This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, this is just one of many stories that Jesus tells to teach people about the kingdom of God. And if you've been tracking, if you've been reading any gospel for any period of time, you actually see that, that Jesus tells a lot of stories to do this. We, we actually follow a, a storytelling savior, a savior who understood the power of stories and used stories to make a point, to make kingdom points. And to make these kingdom points, Jesus used a specific kind of story that's called a parable. And parables are these, uh, these imaginary stories that make real points. They, they create worlds that Jesus invites us to step into, worlds that invite us to consider new ways of seeing reality. And it is in these imaginary worlds that these real points actually tend to be difficult points. Right, that they tend to be hard teachings that confront us with truth, that, that, that force us to think and, and, and even provoke us to act. At some level, par parables almost feel something like, like Jesus' Mary Poppins way of teaching about the kingdom, about God and, 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 and his, what he's doing in the world. A spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. It's, it's stories that, 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 that are beautiful, but they, they, they embed this provocative truth that, that gives this truth an opportunity to get to our hearts before our minds are so quick to dismiss them as, ah, you know what, that's not about me. It, it is a, a world that we step into that we need to allow, if we're going to get out of it, what Jesus means for us to get out of the story, that we need to allow these worlds to surround us. We need to step into that world and, and, and see it for what it is. We need to be ready to listen to Jesus in these worlds and looking for the unspoken question he's trying to answer. And then we need to step out of those worlds ready to obey his point. They're not stories that just stay out there in, in, in kind of beautiful, something that we can read and move on from. They're stories that demand a response ready to align our lives with these kingdom principles, these stories, they're more than just good stories. If you read through the story of Scripture, these parables actually don't just show up in the Gospels. 
These parables, they're actually tools of the trade for prophets. Hosea 12.10, God says this. He says, I spoke to the prophets, gave them many visions, and told parables through them. God actually ends up commanding the prophet Ezekiel on multiple occasions to, to tell his people a parable. There's an entire book in the Bible meant to help God's people understand parables. It's the book of Proverbs. God uses parables all over his word to communicate not just morals and nice principles and good stories, but life to his people. To warn them away from death, to shape them as his kingdom citizens. So when Jesus' disciples in our text this morning ask Jesus for the meaning of his parable, it should come as no surprise to us that Jesus responds by quoting from another prophet, Isaiah. Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 8, 9 through 10, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been, has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables so that, and this is where he quotes Isaiah, though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. What Jesus is essentially doing is explaining his teaching strategy. This is why I'm doing this. And he does it by quoting from Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. And so before we step into the world of the story that Jesus gives us in this particular text in Luke 8, I want us to pause right here in the middle of that text where Jesus explains what he's doing to ground ourselves in his teaching strategies so that we don't miss what he's doing in this story. And so I want us to go to Isaiah to do that. The, the, the passage that Jesus quotes in Isaiah is actually right in the middle of this very important section. It's right near the beginning, but it's when, when Isaiah is explaining what the Lord uh, has done in his life, how the Lord has called him to be a prophet. He, he, these, these verses that Jesus quotes is actually Isaiah giving his job description, or, or better yet, God giving Isaiah his job description and explaining what he's doing. Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 says this, Go, this is God speaking, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Verse 10, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Whoa. That's what Jesus is quoting when he's about to tell a really nice story. This is why I say that, that these stories are not just nice stories. They have a point, sometimes a sharp point with eternal consequences. Isaiah's job is basically tell the people that they're going to hear, but they're not going to understand. Tell them that, the, that they're going to see, but they're going to have trouble focusing on what their eyes are seeing. Isaiah, your preaching will, will, will harden hearts, muffle ears, and, and shut eyes. That is not the kind of preaching ministry that I, that I want to sign up for. But this is the job of a prophet. Go to the people who have not been listening to God and warn them about what's coming for them if they continue not listening, if they continue rebelling against their creator king. It's kind of like when my children turn on their selective hearing. Have you guys experienced this? You, you, I, they're, my children, they're doing something that they know they should not be doing. I, and it's not even just a mistake that they didn't understand what I said. They, just, they know they shouldn't be doing that thing. And I know because they're side-eyeing me as they're doing the thing. And I warn them about the consequences of disobedience, and all of a sudden it seems like they've lost their hearing. I know they can hear me, but they're not listening to me. And my warnings that I give them, they're not meant to keep them from listening to me. They're, they're not meant to keep them from, from turning from the error of their ways. Quite the opposite. But if my children are intent on disobeying, my warnings might as well be shouting into the wind. My warnings are meant to draw them to repentance, to bring them back from their disobedience. Sometimes it's to, to get them out of the street before a, a car shows up. They're meant to keep them safe, 
but they're still warnings. It's kind of what's happening here. That's why the last part of Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 is so important. Because if we're thinking about that, what, what God actually says in his job description for Isaiah is that he, he's provoking his people to respond, to repent. He, so the text says that they would see, they would hear, they would understand, they would repent, and they would turn, repent, and there would be healing. He's like, otherwise, if they actually responded to what I'm saying, there would be healing available for them. God is not trying to create a barrier to repentance or to complicate forgiveness. He's trying to provoke people to, to, to turn, to, to see what they're doing, to see the rebellion. He's trying to provoke them to repentance, but he's also not an ignorant God. He's not, he's not ignorant of the, the barrier that we have erected between us and him and our sin. He's also at the same time acknowledging that, that, that there's these complications that we have weaved into our lives by our sin, by our stubborn hearts that refuse to hear his warnings. And so Jesus, similar to Isaiah, uses a prophetic vehicle, these parables, to prod hearts that would be resistant to warning to provoke the kind of repentance that would bring healing. It's kind of like when the selective hearing problem starts to creep up in my children. If I said, you know what, I mean, if you were to come do this, we might, I don't know, go play at the park or something. But I guess you don't want to do that. So you can keep doing what you're doing over there. I'm trying to provoke them to turn, to turn and obey and understand what's happening. With all that in mind, then, I want you to hear the story that Jesus tells to make his first kingdom point. These are all the building blocks I want you to have as we get into the story so that we don't miss what Jesus is doing. And the point of his kingdom story in this moment is that hearing is believing. Look at the text, verse 4. While a large crowd was gathering, the people were coming to Jesus from town after town. He told this parable. Remember, we're about to step into another world here with Jesus. This is a parable, a story that's meant to make a point. And here's the story he tells. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on. The birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Of verse 7, other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. Jesus finishes telling the story, and he says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So for the rest of our time, we're going to be living in the world of this parable and try to understand the point that Jesus is making here, that hearing is believing. And we're going to take time throughout to imagine what that would look like for us here at TVC. These stories are meant to draw us in, but to, to imagine a different kind of, of life and what the truth that hearing is believing, how that plays itself out here at TVC. And what's amazing about this parable and why I started with this one is that unlike most parables, we actually have the interpretation of the parable right after Jesus tells the story. We don't always get that. Jesus essentially jumps into the world with us and walks us through and points out all the things that he's doing in this story. And we're going to wrestle with other ones that don't give us all that. But here in this interpretation, Jesus actually gives us the five threads he's weaving together. And he starts with the very important truth. That God's kingdom is made up of people of the word. And it is out of this truth that he imagines four different ways of life in response to that word. And he uses these ways of life to provoke us to have the right response to God's word. These four ways of life are there listed on the screen they're when that word is rejected, when the word is received but shallow, when the word is received but strangled, and when that word is received and retained. We are people of the word and there are four ways we respond. The four ways that plays out. Rejected, shallow, strangled, 
were retained. And by the end of the story, Jesus' call is for us to be that fourth way because hearing is believing. But I'll start with that first important truth that God gives us before we get to the four scenarios. God's people are people of the word. The kingdom of God is made up of citizens who obey God's word, who obey what God has revealed in his Bible. To, to put it another way, Christians are defined by how closely we align ourselves with the word of our king. This identification as people of the word actually comes right from the text, right at the beginning of Jesus' explanation in verse 11. Look what he says. This is the meaning of the parable. And where does he start? The seed is the word of God. The seed that the farmer sows, this, this seed with the potential for life, this seed is the word of a king establishing his kingdom. It is the revelation of a God who wants to reveal himself, who wants to tell us who he is, who in all reality, we need him to reveal himself if we're going to find out he even exists. It, it, he, we only know him because he has revealed himself. It is the revelation of a God that, that the word actually describes in the Psalms as sweeter than honey. Something that is life-giving, that reverses death and repairs the destruction of sin. This word that made us into the people of God. This word that by the power of the Spirit of God made us into the people of God because of the sacrifice of the Son of God. This is the word that Jesus is telling this parable about. We start there because God starts there, because God's people start there. We are people of the word, TVC. People who depend on God's word because we know that it's more than just an ancient book. It's more than just a, a, a human testimony about a, a spirituality. It's more than just an interesting account of history. We know that it is what 2 Timothy 3.16 teaches us, that it is God-breathed. That it is useful for, for training, correcting, teaching, rebuking. All of it in righteousness, so we might live kingdom lives, that we might be completely ready for everything that God has for us to do. Every good deed, every gospel act of loving, every gospel act of serving, so we might be ready to express the kingdom at our, at our jobs and in our neighborhoods and with our families. This is where it starts. And so as we prepare to celebrate God's faithfulness over five years, as we anticipate trusting in God's continued faithfulness for the next 5, 10, 50, 100 years. The point of this parable is the beginning of the definition of being disciples, and it's what we have to hold on to as disciples of Jesus in this community, that we are people of the Word. People who align our lives with the Word. People who submit our way of seeing this world to the way of His seeing the world because He's the one who created this world. Every year since middle school, I've had to go get my eyes checked. I wear contacts, and so I've got to check on my prescription. And if you've ever had that experience, there's a moment in that, that, that uh, exam where, where you have that, uh, hey, what's the lowest, smallest line that you can read test? I get super nervous. I start to sweat. I want to make sure I read the right. I, like, memorize it. So it's checking my eyes. Why am I doing that? But he puts on this thing that looks like, like, like I'm an alien because it's got 100 different lenses on it. And then he's checking, okay, flip A or B better. All right, C or D. All right, G or, how many letters are we going to, are you telling me the letters? Are you passing me the answers to the test? So he's checking my eyes over and over again, little by little, to see where my prescription's at, to see what I need, to see clearly. Do you see, this is what the word of God is for us every time we open it up. It is something that is checking our eyes and helping us see the world clearly and adjusting the, the, the blurry vision where we're not sure what we're seeing before us. 
It is what corrects our vision, our perspective, until we are aligned with God's reality. We are people of the word because he is a God of the word and he has revealed himself to us in his word. And that word, this word of God, has revealed a good God with good news for sinners. News of a kingdom with a new way of life. A new reality that God is beginning to restore everything, to make everything right again. Here and now through his church, you don't have to wait till the end for everything to to start turning right again. That he's using his people to continue his restoration project that started all the way back in the Garden of Eden from the moment that we sinned. When he promises Adam and Eve that there is one coming who will crush the head of the serpent. There's a snake crusher coming who is going to fix what has been broken. This promise was was fleshed out for centuries as God revealed himself in his word to people until he eventually fleshed it out completely by taking on human flesh in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the word of God. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And you continue through that whole chapter and eventually you figure out that Jesus Christ is the word that John is talking about. God in human flesh, living the the, the good life that he intended us to live, dying the horrific death that we were supposed to die because of our sin and our rebellion against the king, and then coming back to life so that we were not just waiting for some kind of deserved punishment, but because there 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 was forgiveness of sin. We could live the way God intended us to live, designed life to be lived. This word of God reveals a good God with good news for sinners like you and like me. Jesus' parable in Luke 8 begins with the word because the people of God begin with the word. The seed is the word of God. So with that iron tight, we can now look at the four different scenarios that Jesus gives us. He gives us four different scenarios that play out between planting and harvest. And the only variable you'll notice in each scenario that determines whether this seed, this word of God, actually takes root in this imaginary world of the parable that we're in is the soil that the seed is planted in. And so Jesus describes each of these soils and he explains what they each symbolize. Four soils, four scenarios, four opportunities for failure or for success. And you'll notice if you track with the story that there are the first three scenarios end in failure. And they end in failure at different stages of the seed's life cycle. And it is the fourth and final soil that's the only one that ends in success. So let's go through each of them one by one. And we'll start with that first one, when the word of God is rejected. The story tells us, Some seed fell along the path, it was trampled on, the birds ate it up. But Jesus explains in verse 12 that those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they might not believe and be saved. The word of God is preached. People hear. But before they even have a chance to respond, the seed that was planted is snatched away by the enemy of God's people, the devil. Now I want you to continue to remember that the world of the parables that we're in operate according to their own rules. Parables never give extra details. They don't have time for that. They are brief to the point and every detail matters, but we want to be really careful that we don't overinterpret what's happening in this parable because if we do, then we're actually going to break the world of the parable by doing that. And so what we have in this first soil is not an explanation of spiritual warfare. It is not a field guide for how to fight the devil. It is a recognition that when the word of God is preached, there is a spiritual battle that happens. It is a recognition that there is an enemy who works hard so that some who hear the word will not actually believe that word because if they believe, then they would be saved. The word of God is effective the moment it is received. 
how that happens, why it happens, when it happens, Jesus doesn't bother to explain in this particular parable because that's not his point. The point is that the preaching of the kingdom of God is not just some interesting discussion about philosophy and religion. It is a a life or death matter that involves an enemy that is actively trying to keep people from believing the word and being saved. And so when the word of God is preached here on a Sunday morning, when we communicate the message of the gospel to our neighbors at our jobs, when we tell someone about Jesus, we have to recognize that there, there are some who will not believe, that there is a spiritual battle happening around us, that there are some who will be angry, uh, disinterested, confused. They won't ever take the next step into belief. But what we are called to is faithfulness to communicating that gospel. The gospel is about more than just philosophy. It's more than just another lifestyle or an option among many. The preaching of the word of God is about life and death, and there is a real spiritual battle being waged by God through the preaching of the word. But I don't want you to press this further than the parable wants to. So I leave it right here to say this is the first scenario Jesus gives us to acknowledge that there's something happening when the preaching of the word of God happens, that it's life or death, and he makes that point. But that's all we get. The word of God is rejected in this first soil. We get to the next soil then. The next two situations actually conjure up this uh, a different kind of tone for us in this imaginary world. The first soil has this like dark tone of like spiritual burglary that's happening. The word's not even received, but in these next two that we're going to talk about, the word is, is both received and actually has a, a good response. But what we'll see in both scenarios is that the response is short-lived, is empty, and is ultimately artificial. And so we'll start with that second scenario of the parable, when the word is received, but it is shallow. Jesus describes this scenario, see, that, that fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. He explains in verse 13, those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The soil, this kind of person that Jesus is talking about, hears the word of God and receives it with joy. The problem is that the joy is rootless. The soil looks good on the outside. The seed actually starts to come up. It produces what looks like a healthy plant, but the rocks beneath do not let the roots grow deeper and deeper, and eventually shallow roots make the first signs of life short-lived when testing comes. When trial and adversity enter the picture, when when Jesus' lesson starts to sharpen here for us in this parable, because he's illustrating that joy is not a surefire way to confirm true faith. That receiving God's word with joy is not enough. It's not bad. But it is not the determining factor that there is faith here. It doesn't translate into real faith if it doesn't get past the initial joy. Beneath initial joy, there there might still be this bedrock of unbelief that when push comes to shove, when water gets scarce and life gets hard and, and hard times come, those who looked like they had faith show that they actually don't have faith because it never grew deeper than a few inches. It's temporary. It's ultimately unproductive. There's a New Testament theologian, Klein Snodgrass, writing about this parable, and he explains it like this. He says, people think that they can look like giant oaks without putting down deep roots. When they realize how much effort it takes to put down deep roots, they too often settle for being bramble bushes. TVC, what do our lives look like in the middle of difficulty? How deep do our roots go? Do the trials that come our way disintegrate the faith that we say we have? 
How do we as a community of God's people do when difficulty knocks on our door? For the next 5, 10, 50, 100 years, my prayer is that this community, that our testimony would be deep roots cultivated by the word of God that hold us up in suffering rather than letting us wither in trial because I can guarantee you that suffering is coming. I can guarantee you if suffering has not already happened to you that it will because Jesus never promises that suffering is going to be absent from your life when you become a Christian. What he promises is that he will be with you as you suffer. What he promises is that he's going to make something good out of suffering. What he promises is his presence and his hand in the middle of it all. Responding to God's word requires us to follow up joy with a lifelong commitment to Jesus. It requires us to put in the hard work of putting down deep roots that trust in the goodness of God no matter what. Struggle in this life is normal. Doubt, confusion, frustration with God, it shows up in the pages of scriptures over and over again. The difference, the difference for Christians who have a, 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 a lifelong faith is that when those moments come, our faith draws us to bring those doubts and confusions and, and frustrations to God rather than walking away from God because he's big enough to handle all of those. Because he's there for you. Because he is not a God who, is, uh, uh, who has been absent from suffering. He's a God who has experienced suffering in the deepest way when he sent his son to die for us. When Jesus on the cross says, my Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The depths of suffering in that moment mean that God knows your suffering. That faith tells us to bring all of that to him. And so what I pray for us, what Jesus is warning us towards is faith that keeps coming back to God even in doubt and confusion and trial and adversary. This this parable gives a a long view of life. It's not just about the moments you struggle, right? If it's about moments you struggle, then we're like, we switch from one soil to the next. Like, okay, now I'm the one that doesn't have this. And now this parable is trying to give a, a complete picture of a life that is either trusting in God or withers in trials. What characterizes your whole life in relation to God? In the case of this second scenario, is it the superficial faith that withers in the face of difficulty? Well, then Jesus would say that's not true faith. Hearing is believing because we are people of the word that are defined by that word. There's a spiritual battle over souls that can snatch that word, and difficulties can expose shallow roots, withering the life of faith. But there is a life of faith that makes it to the end. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We haven't even gone to our third scenario. This third scenario takes us further into the life cycle of the seed word of God before we get to the one that actually is successful. And here, that word is received but strangled. Similar to the second soil, in his imaginary situation, the word of God is received. It even shows life signs and starts to grow, but something begins to grow alongside it and begins to strangle the life of faith of this seed. Jesus tells a story like this, other seed that fell among thorns... These thorns, they grew up with it. They choked the plants. And then Jesus explains, this seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. In other words, what Jesus says is this seed hits the soil and starts to grow, like any good seed should and does, but something else is growing there too. Something that begins to steal nutrients, that begins to steal the resources that are needed to grow. 
Weeds. Weeds that Jesus says symbolize the worries of life and money and pleasure. And again, world of the parables. This is not some exhaustive list. These are all the only ones I need to worry about. We're still in this imaginary world of the parable, but it does communicate this this frightening picture of distraction. The danger of distraction that crowds out the message of the kingdom and chokes off the life of faith communicated with misplaced priorities. Later in Luke 12, verses 22 to 31, Jesus speaks directly to this and he tells us that disciples don't need to worry or be consumed by, by their needs in life like food and clothing and water, but that's not because they're not important. It's because our Father, our Heavenly Father, knows that we need them. And so Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. So when we talk about this third soil, what I want us to realize is that what it's calling us to is not to just ignore everything that has to do with life. It's to keep your priorities in the right order. It's not that our needs don't matter, that there are not things in our lives that we need to be responsible for, that money is a non-issue, that anybody, that you don't have to worry about it. That any kind of pleasure is sin. Anything you enjoy is all of a sudden unchristian because you had a smile on your face. It's not what is being talked about here. God knows that we have needs. He created us with those needs. God created things in this world. Just read Job when he's like actually arguing with Job and talking like, where were you when I did this and where I did that? There's a point where he says like, where were you when I created this creature or that creature? And he just starts naming the funniest looking creatures that he's created. And it's almost like a God that goes like, I made this creature because I wanted to. Because I liked how he looked. A platypus. I mean, that's the combination of a bunch of things that I... Should they be together in this animal? God created things because he's a God of beauty and joy and pleasure. That, that artistry matters just for the sake of being art. That's not what this is talking about. The problem is when these realities, these joys, these pleasures, they start to jump the rankings of our lives when they start to edge out God and the message of the kingdom as primary, when, when that starts to happen in Jesus' parabolic world, they begin to choke the life out of faith. Now, if you don't know this by now, I am not a farmer and I am not a landscaper. There are guys here, ladies here that love doing this stuff. I do not. I'm really bad at it. I don't think I've kept a single plant alive in my entire life, which is why my in-laws had to come to my house to help us plant flowers because I didn't know what I was doing. And no, I didn't look it up on YouTube. I was too worried about the money that I would spend. But when they were helping us do all of this, I learned a lot about weeds. Weeds that seem to grow up wherever they feel like it. It's my garden. Why are you here? They have flowers. They look deceptively nice. My girls love picking these flowers, and I don't have the heart to tell them that these are weeds and not beautiful flowers. These weeds, they show up wherever they want in my garden like they run the place and they pretend to be nice, pretty flowers, but ultimately they are selfish. They take up resources, a little here, a little there. Their roots start to grow and they take up some more of the water that I'm using to water the plants that I actually want to grow in this space. There are actually some weeds that will take up all of the resources around them so nothing can grow in that space. And that's how they strangle other plants. It's not immediate. It takes time. But the warning signs eventually show. The leaves start to turn yellow on the plants that I actually want to grow. The weeds are tall and my plants are short. The weeds have dominated the landscape. There aren't really any flowers on my plants, but these weeds have tons of yellow flowers. My plants do not mature as they should. They do not produce as they should. 
In the world of this parable, Jesus here paints a life that is caught up with second and third tier priorities, effectively and essentially killing the first priority, hearing and responding in obedience to the word of God. So this question that this scenario asks us is what defines your life? What is first place in your life? Some receive God's word with joy, others receive it and grow, but without roots and choked by weeds, neither produce the life of faith that the seed word of God intends. Luke 12, 31 tells us, seek first his kingdom. Keep the main thing the main thing. Yes, work hard and trust in God's provision and remember that the most important thing is not the commas in your bank account. The most important thing is not making sure that you have a completely stress-free life. The most important thing is not accumulating as much happiness as you possibly can in your life. It is seeking God and his kingdom because he provides for all of our needs and true happiness is being satisfied in him. What defines your life? Well, our fourth and final soil tells us what should define our lives. The only successful scenario that Jesus paints in this world of the parable is when the word of God is both received and retained. When God's word is heard and obeyed over a long period of time, Pastor Eugene Peterson actually takes a quote from the philosopher Nietzsche and applies it to the Christian life when he describes God's call of discipleship as a call to a long obedience in the same direction. This is the life symbolized by the good soil in Jesus' parable. He says, Some, Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. And so Jesus explains the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. The only successful scenario that Jesus gives here is one that the word of God is received with this good heart, is held on to no matter what, endures whatever comes, and produces what the seed word of God was meant to produce, kingdom lives marked by the gospel. So Jesus slows down here at his fourth and final soil to explain its characteristics because this is what his parable has been working towards this entire time. The first characteristic he gives us is this good heart. Good soil starts with a good heart. It starts with the right kind of heart that can actually hear what God is saying because the, the preaching of the word of God is not just some intellectual exercise. It actually goes all the way down to the heart. It is a noble heart that needs to be honest about the way the world works that is good and will respond in the right way. And I want to remind you that parables that are intentionally brief, that don't add unnecessary details, are screaming when they add a detail like this. Up until now, every scenario is focused on everything that happens after the seed is planted. But now Jesus adds an extra detail describing what must be true before the seed is planted. Before the word of God is heard, the heart must be good. And just like the first soil, the parable doesn't explain how this happens. Just that it does. And that this good heart prepares the way for God's word. But I'm going to step outside of the parabolic world and say in the rest of scripture, we know that good hearts, new hearts, are the hearts that are promised by God. That he promises that someday in Ezekiel he will take our hearts of stone and give us hearts, these bad hearts, give us a spiritual heart transplant and give us hearts of flesh, good hearts. That good hearts are a gift of God. That it is God's work, his first work in us in saving us. But that's not the focus of this parable. This parable doesn't ignore God's sovereignty, but it doesn't focus on it either. The focus of this parable is about our responsibility in responding to the word of God. Its focus is on whether or not people respond to God's revelation. So good soil starts with a good heart, a heart that has been promised in the rest of Scripture to God, by God to all who believe. But this parable isn't about how you get into the kingdom. It's what you do when you're in the kingdom. It's how you're supposed to respond as kingdom citizens 
And this kingdom life is not passive. It actually does something. And so this is the call to action in this parable. Jesus says at the end of the telling of the story before the crowd, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so now in private with his disciples, he goes into more details and explains that hearing is believing. But then he tells them that true belief hears, retains, perseveres, and produces. That's the point of this parable and the sticking point of Jesus' kingdom message. Hear the message of the kingdom. Stay focused on the message of the kingdom in TVC. My plead with you, my prayer with you, that you would let that message of the kingdom define your life. Define every single aspect of your life. That we might be people of the word who hold tight to God's word and his promises. That, that, that we're not just willing to listen to God's word, but, but we work hard at listening better. That we respond to God's word with perseverance. That we cling to God when it is difficult. That we hold on when we are tempted away from God, even in the good times. That we hold on as people of the word who don't just hear with their ears, but hear with their entire lives. TBC, as God calls us to continued faithfulness, and, and whatever this next season looks like for us in this next year, what would it look like if we received God's word and held tight to it, retained it, What would it look like over the next year, five years, 10 years, 50, 100 years if we were holding tight to the word of God in this community? What would happen in our neighborhoods and our jobs and our homes and in this family if we responded to God's word with what one writer calls believing obedience? The kingdom of God demands that we alter the way we see the world. It demands that we completely reorient our lives around God and who he has revealed himself to be. It calls us to faithful endurance patience in trouble, commitment to the kingdom that is seen in commitment to the word of the king. People of the word are the opposite of all three of these other soils. They don't don't fall away in testing. They don't allow the worries of life to strangle the life of faith. They trust that it is God who has waged war for their souls and has won. That the word is being cultivated in humble hearts that are transformed by God and show that transformation with transformed lives that actually act out their faith. There's another New Testament theologian, and I know I'm quoting a bunch of people here, but this professor, this Craig Keener, he sums up the point of the parable like this, and and I didn't want to steal it, and I didn't want to actually plagiarize. So this is what he says. He says, the only conversions that count in the kingdom are those that are confirmed by a life of discipleship. Is this what characterizes our lives here? Lives that are dedicated to God and his word as true disciples. God does not settle for indifference or temporary commitment. He wants every single area of our lives. He refuses to share his throne with idols, with with money or, or the mismatched priorities, all because he knows that life is better when he is the first party, when he is the king of our lives. Jesus uses this parable to challenge attitudes that are dismissive, shallow, or divided about the kingdom of God because none of these will do. True disciples are disciples who hold on to and respond to God's word. It's not something fancy. It's not something catchy. It is something simple, but it's something that will take the rest of our lives to obey. This is the call of Jesus for us today, the call to respond. Hearing is believing and our lives will show it. Does the pressure of life deflate your faith and cause you to run away? Do you indulge? Do we indulge in the pleasures of life? Or are we caught up in all of life's cares to the exclusion of God and his kingdom? 
Or is our faith, is your faith grounded in God's word and who he says, who he has revealed himself to be, who Jesus is that bears fruit over many years in patience and perseverance? It's harder and it takes longer, but it lasts forever. This is the heart of Jesus for us. He tells us a story to confront us, to provoke us to a true and life-giving response of faith to our good and faithful God. Be the fourth soil, TVC. God is at work. And so when I tell you to, to do something, sometimes people think, oh, that's, that's, that's starting to sound like legalism, Eric. You're making me, me do something. Doesn't the gospel say that it's already done? Yes, God is at work. He has been at work. He has already completed the work in Christ. But he is making you look more like Jesus in your life. And you have skin in the game. We need to obey the word of God. We need to live lives of disciples. We, life of discipleship doesn't just happen to us. We live it out. We, we activate, we do something, not just today, not just this week, but as we step into what God has for us over years, over an entire life, will we show the work of God in our lives by obeying the word of God with our lives? That's my prayer for you, TVC. That's my prayer for me and for us, that we might show that we are disciples by living a life of discipleship, because hearing is believing. Would you pray with me? Good and faithful God, this morning we pray that you would continue to work this parable into our hearts. That you might confront us with our mismatched priorities. That you might show our shallow roots. That you might draw us further into faithful obedience, both as individuals and as part of the family of God here in Streamwood. We are confident in your character as a God who has revealed himself to us, who has sacrificed himself to save us. We pray that you would continue to show yourself faithful to us this next year that you would call us to patient endurance as we hold tight to your word. We trust you, Jesus. Would you help us trust you even more as we live out our lives, our lives as an outpost of new creation life here, as a local expression of your church here in this community. We love you. We know you love us. Help us to show other people that you love them. In the name of Jesus, we pray that you would continue to make us look more like your Savior in this next season. Amen.